French influence on the fashion of the Gulf Coast South from John McGill. John was born in New Orleans, raised in California, and upon returning to Louisiana, attended the University of New Orleans, where he received an MA in history. He has been employed by Historic New Orleans Collection since 1982. His main field of historic study has been New Orleans urban growth and infrastructure, about which he has written and lectured extensively. He has also researched the development of the retail and wholesale trade industries, not only as a part of the urban fabric, but also as they relate to changing fashion trends and social history. His articles have appeared in New Orleans Magazine, Preservation in Print, Louisiana Cultural Vistas, and the Historic New Orleans Collection Quarterly. He's contributed to several books, including Charting Louisiana, Classic New Orleans, and uh, here we go, Marie Adrian, Adrian Persak, a Louisiana artist, with local television producer uh, Peggy Scott LaVore. He has co-written Canal Street, New Orleans' Great Wide Way, and Christmas in New Orleans. He was awarded a first place Greater New Orleans Press Club Award in 2006 and a Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities Individual Achievement in the Humanities Award in 2007. Please welcome John McGill. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a little bit different for me. Uh, you know, talking about ladies' fashion is quite different from talking about um, infrastructure, sewers and gutters and streetlights and such. Uh, it's much more pleasant, I must say. Uh, I do want to add a disclaimer. I've never designed a costume. I've never designed fashion. And when I have to sew a button on my shirt, I grit my teeth. So I do not know really how to sew. Although living in this uh, rather fantastic and uh, fantasy city of New Orleans where we do have uh, carnival, Mardi Gras. I do know some car uh, costume designers, some of whom uh, do design costumes in historical vein. And it's a great deal of fun working along uh, with them. And I've learned some things that I never realized before. You know, I will provide them with some components of what maybe a woman might have worn in the 18th or the 19th century. And I'm told you made some very good selections, but nobody could wear that today because women don't wear the same types of corsets they did in the 19th century. No one wears stays. No one would agree to wear stays today. Um, working at the Historic New Orleans Collection, too, I also became uh, more knowledgeable without realizing it in the development of clothing. When I first started working here in 1982, when I was just out of elementary school, uh, <laughs> uh, I was a catalog, and I cataloged a number of uh, old photogra early photographs. And it certainly helps your life along when you begin to learn what fashion looked like. You learn that women's fashion changes quite frequently. There is a difference between the bustles of 1873 and the bustles of 1886, which were so upholstered and so large you could put a fully loaded tea tray on them. Um, but it, you know, it's a great deal of fun dealing with that sort of thing. Um, one of my favorite writers at the time is an American writer from Iowa named Bill Bryson. He's living in England now, and he's lived there for a number of years. And he wrote a book called At Home, which came out about a year or so ago. And of fashion, he wrote, Fashion is often nearly impossible to fathom. Throughout many periods of history, perhaps most, it can seem as if the whole impulse of fashion has been to look maximally ridiculous. If one could be maximally uncomfortable as well, the triumph is all the greater. Dressing impractically is a way of showing that one does not have to work, he says, which is much more important than being comfortable. Uh, it's separated the wearer from the masses. 
It showed wealth and position, and this was not only true in Europe, but it was taken to the New World and the colonies with the colonists as they grew wealthier. They not only wanted to look the best they could, but they also wanted to separate themselves from those who had not been so successful. And they also wanted to, in a way, recreate home as well. Someone living in 18th, 19th century New Orleans perhaps wanted to think they were in Paris. To maintain European fashion in the colonies, even here, was not that difficult when you get right down to it. There were a few truths that you have to remember. Fashion in the provinces and colonies anywhere could be as much as a year behind any radical change. Uh, the French, during the period of the French Revolution, uh, women's fashion changed dramatically over a fairly short period of time. It would take it a little while to get uh, to New Orleans. Uh, but overall, silhouettes tend to remain um, around for a while. Uh, there's always a certain amount of overlapping, too, as more conservative uh, dressers would cling to older styles as it suited them. Prior to the 18th century, there were distinct national styles, but by the 18th century, the French taste in women's styles began to predominate. Uh, in fact, you can say after about 1800, the history of costume, women's costume at any rate, was history of French costume. By the end of the 18th century, the court of Versailles, in particular, Marie Antoinette and her dressmaker, Rose Bertin, who's sometimes called the first couturier, although she really wasn't. She was more of a very, very fine, very glorified dressmaker. Uh, by, that, by the late 18th century, Versailles was the arbiter of women's fashion tastes in the Western world. And even with the fall of the monarchy at the time of the Revolution, France retained that position. And in fact, it became much stronger after that. By the 19th century, there was a growing middle class in Europe as well. Uh, across Europe and the United States, influencing fashion rather than the aristocracy. There was also a growing manufacturing in, uh, in textiles, which was extremely important. Uh, fabric making in 1700 was nothing much more than a cottage industry, but it became the centerpiece of the Industrial Revolution by the end of the century. Textile production began as a key industry, beginning in, in Britain, later in France, and then elsewhere, including the United States. Inexpensive printed cottons became as within the reach of the mass market for the first time, which revolutionized clothing as well as luxury fabrics like French silks. There were also new dyes produced of better and uh, stronger colors. Trade was also important. And this is something that really came into play in, in our own area. It was the age of mercantilism. When we were a French colony, we traded with France. When we were a Spanish colony, we were supposed to trade with Spain, but the Spaniards were sufficiently intelligent enough to realize that we were already a French colony. We still wanted to trade with France. In 1768, Spain allowed concessions in Louisiana, allowing goods from France and even Britain to arrive in this port as long as they came via Spanish ports. Bernardo de Galvez, one of our governors, was the son-in-law of a French Creole, and Galvez was a champion of French interests in Spain and its colonies. Direct trade with France was legalized. One of the largest trading items in the 18th century was fabric. Now, granted, the greatest, the greatest amount of goods to go through the port of New Orleans would have been food products, like flour. But there were also goods that came into the port, including textiles. Uh, there was a lucrative smuggling trade between Anglo-American areas like West Florida, in some ways almost monopolized Louisiana trade. Also, Anglo and American traders in New Orleans traded through Philadelphia, New York, and even Britain. The Spaniards allowed that. Uh, they dealt in many products ranging from flour to dry goods. The Gulf Coast came to the orbit of Anglo-American trade, and fabrics were available 
to this area. How did people find out about the latest fashions? It wasn't quite as easy today. You know, you didn't get your Saks catalog or your Vogue catalog or magazine in the mail. And much of it was fairly unscheduled. Uh, across Europe and in various colonies starting as early as the 17th century, uh, women and dressmakers awaited traders carrying dress, dress, fashion, or Pandora dolls from Paris. These are said to be exact copies of what was worn. They really weren't. They were miniaturized interpretations of what the latest fashions were. The doll at the left is probably 19th century, while the two at the right are uh, 18th century. But when traders would bring fabrics with them, they would bring these dolls along, and the dressmakers or the ladies themselves who would make their own clothes uh, would wait impatiently to see what the dolls looked like, and then they would interpret the style. So what you were seeing was more of a silhouette style. You know, no one was really able to exactly copy what was being worn at the court of Versailles, nor would anyone want to. Some of those styles were absolutely absurd, but the styles were certainly uh, interpreted in the dolls. By the late 18th century, illustrated fashion journals like Tableau de Paris, Magasin du Mode Nouvelle, uh, Journal du Goût, Galerie des Modes et Coutumes Francais were beginning to appear. They appeared on about a oh, every six-month or yearly basis. These were beautifully colored engravings that were also sent out with the, the textile dealers. Fashion progressed little in the um, early colony of Louisiana. It was really too poor and too struggling at the very beginning. Uh, there was one attempt at fashion. Uh, there was the introduction of the silkworm cultivation here. It failed miserably because silkworms don't do well in our climate. But by the late 1740s, with a growing plantation wealth, and trade wealth, New Orleans in particular, but much of the Gulf Coast where uh, individuals, um, where well-off individuals were already beginning to appear, uh, the area developed a reputation for luxury loving, and women were frequently noted for their love of fashion. Governors complained bitterly that they were not paid enough to support the lifestyle that they were expected to live in this area. This is La Creole. Uh, probably dates from about this 1780s or so, I would guess. Um, she's probably not from Louisiana. She may be from one of the islands. She may be someone living in France, but definitely she represents the colonial world. And uh, quite fashionable for the late 18th century. About 1714, the hoop was introduced from England, of all places. Uh, but it eventually evolved in France into a range of contraptions and shapes, most notably the pannier skirt, which flared at the sides. And... It's really not a very becoming name, really, because panniers are the uh, baskets that are hung on the sides of donkeys to, uh, to carry goods. So if someone is wearing a pannier skirt, uh, that's what it means. By the 1750s and 60s, these became absurd, especially in the court at Versailles. They became even worse in the 1770s and 80s. Uh, most of these were fads, but uh, they ranged anywhere up to seven feet wide. Uh, some of the hoops had, had hinges on them so that uh, if a lady wanted to get through a narrow doorway, she'd pull them in the front or to the side or do whatever was necessary. To sit down, she could pull them forward or pull them backward. Uh, but you know, they, those who were wearing them learned how to, uh, to deal with them. Uh, the style stayed in vogue until about the 1780s, when the whole thing was bunched in the back into a kind of a bustle called the Polonaise. Also, for the first time, the skirt became several inches shorter, which, which was rather daring, and the ankle and the lower calf were being shown. And this is an example of that. I suspect this is probably a polonaise pulled in the back with kind of a bustle. And you can see she's actually showing her uh, ankles as she dances around there. 
Skirts changed frequently in the 18th century, but the bodice remained pretty much the same. They were slim, long-waisted, with a sharp point at the bottom, as you can see there. And the waist was held in by stays, which I think must have made life rather miserable, difficult to breathe in them at any rate. Uh, sleeves were generally about elbow length, with frill or other decorations sometimes. They did reach wrist length, but they tended to be rather like she's wearing uh, there. Aprons appeared in the 17th century, but they became very popular in the late 18th century. And this was partly because Marie Antoinette was trying to recreate the country life at Le Petit Trianon. Very luxurious, very elegant. Certainly, I don't think she used her apron for very much, but it became a very fashionable addition to the ladies' outfit. Caps of all kinds were also especially popular at that, at that time. And also the caraco, which is a kind of jacket like she's wearing, appeared in the 1760s and lasted well into the uh, early 19th century. It's a little waist-length uh, jacket she is wearing. More locally, we have Madame Marie Madeleine Brutin de la Ronde, and please pardon my French as well. This painting may have been executed in Canada or France, but she definitely does have a local connection. She can be dated just about to circa 1760, most French women did not wear their hair piled on top of their head three or four feet high. You know, that you might see in, in movies and certainly at the court of Versailles. It was an insane fad. Uh, and in the 1760s, they actually wore their hair quite short as she's wearing it. Madame de Pompadour wore her hair sh quite short. And in the case of Madame de la Ronde, it looks as if it's uh, piled up uh, at the back of her neck. And to make the hair do not look so severe, it was softened with bows and jewels. Two other local ladies. The lady on the left is Celeste de la Beuve, and the lady at the right is Clara de Lamotte. Both of these paintings date from about 1790, and they're right at the very end of that, uh, that uh, Versailles look. Uh, the lady at the left uh, has longish hair. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the great poof hairstyle that uh, Marie Antoinette loved, these things that rose about this high, and... Uh, and, you know, sea battles were, uh, were shown in them, and there were horror stories of little varmints moving into the hairdos that they could never really be taken down. It was really an insane style. Most women kept their hair big, but not quite so insane. Uh, the lady at the left looks as if she just brushes it out to the side and almost has a bit of a, uh, an earlier Spanish look about it. Clara de Lamotte at the right is somewhat more fashionable. She's wearing a style that really began, of all places, uh, England, and uh, what came out of that, although I don't have a picture of this, are enormous hats, which became extremely popular. Uh, they're commonly called Gainsborough hats today because so many of them appear in Gainsborough's paintings. The French really didn't wear much in the way of hats prior to that, other than for cooler weather or just to cover their heads. Hats were not a big part of French fashion prior to this. They loved them. And they really took them over which was often the case. Something would come from someplace else. The French liked it. They took it, and they greatly improved upon it, which is what they did with these hats. And if you look, if you look at uh, hat makers through the late 18th century into the early 20th century, the finest were French. So this was something that the English had, had developed on their shores, but the French took it and ran with it. As early as the late 1770s, some women were wearing dress dresses that could be stepped into or pulled over the head. Uh, this could express the peasant's simplicity, the rediscovery of nature, the uh, petit trianon. There were also allusions to classical times, which we saw earlier in the silver and the china. There was great interest in classical taste. 
because of the discoveries in Pompeii and Herculaneum. And this all merged with the French Revolution as uh, there were changing ideals. This was all less conspicuous and less and uh, showed less consumption. Uh, there was also a growing interest in comfort. And with the revolution, there was also a decline in court costume. Uh, it is true that there were some women in Paris who would daub these flimsy dresses with water uh, to make them cling more tightly, but it was, again, that was a fad amongst uh, some individuals. It's not something that was, uh, that was generally done. In fact, it was, it was really looked down upon. Uh, this was the first time when the poor, or maybe the not quite so middle class, I should say, were dressing in much the same way as the wealthy because the fashions were so much simpler. And you'll see a picture later on where you see, in, drawn in New Orleans, where you see two different classes and, uh, and how they're wearing much the same sort of thing. But it all translated into the simple form of the white gown, which is associated with the very late 18th century and early 19th century. The great deal of simplicity had taken over the silhouette. One histor a fashion historian said that in some cases, never since ancient Egypt had ladies been in such a state of undress. It was often called mode à la grecque uh, because it had a classical style, but it consisted of slender shifts with a very high waistline with various styles of neckline, uh, but most of the necklines were rather open, and uh, sleeves tended to be short and puffed. This is Clarice uh, Gerald, who was married to uh, William Claiborne, the first uh, American governor of Louisiana. It dates from about 1805 to 1808, and she's wearing very much the height of fashion at that time. These outfits, though, were pretty unsuitable for northern climates, as you can guess. Uh, but they were very good along the Gulf Coast. So I have to, to say, with, the, uh, with these gowns, it was the first time that women began wearing overcoats, rather like men wore coats, to cover themselves up in the cold. And they also began carrying handbags. There was no place for them to put anything on the dresses. The, the pockets would have, any pockets would have been so tight. So two modern additions uh, were added at that time. Uh, it's also, and this is just a guess on my part, there was a popular gown before the French Revolution that appeared and it really influenced um, uh, Marie Antoinette in her, uh, in her uh, gowns of Le Petit Trianon. It was called uh, A la Creole, and it was based on very slender uh, step-in-two-chemises that uh, ladies in the French colonies were wearing. And of course, you have to remember, with Josephine, she was a Creole from the Caribbean. So she would have been used to this type of, of fashion. But it changed quite dramatically. And this is the look that would have been in New Orleans in 1803 at the time of Louisiana Purchase. And uh, Pierre Clément Lossat was the uh, colonial prefect in New Orleans who came over from France to take the colony back from Spain and then uh, present it to the United States. And he maintained a memoir while he was here. And he made some comments about uh, women in New Orleans and what they wore. And it definitely shows that the city did have a long tradition of fashion. He said the women have good manners and beautiful figures. The luxury of the wardrobe resembles that of Paris. It is a luxury to wear merchandise of superior quality imported from, get this, India, England, and France. So we did have an open, definitely had an open port. Uh, there was a great deal of social life, he said, in New Orleans. There's elegance and good breeding prevailing throughout. At one party, he referred to the women as elegant and gorgeously dressed. At another ball later on, he said women had never been so elegant and fresh-looking in their finery. These were both uh, watercolors from about 1817 or 1818. 
The lady on the left is more middle class. You can see she's wearing uh, the high-waisted gown, uh, typical style of the day. The lady at the right is obviously working. She's obviously a working class person. I mean, she might be working in her home or working for somebody else. She's got the high waistline. She's got the long dress, but she's wearing an apron. And you can tell she's working class, but she is definitely wearing the same silhouette and the same sort of style that would have been worn by the more well-to-do at that time. These are two other ladies in New Orleans. Uh, both date from about 1820. And you can see they still have the high waistline, uh, slightly higher neckline on the right. Hair is very short in the classical style. Very fashionable uh, ladies of the time. I don't think they would be much far behind the Paris fashions, but the silhouette is definitely what would be seen uh, in one of the European capitals. About 1825, the classical look began to wane as tastes moved back towards extravagance. The big change that happened about 1822 is that the waistline dropped. It had been high for a quarter of a century and just went back to its natural level. And so much of this is just evolution. Uh, it's whatever people feel comfortable in. You can only, you know, a gown can only get so big or so small, and then it has to start going back in the other direction. <laughs> Skirts, as you can see, were growing a little bit fuller, and as you can see later on, there was more to the dress beginning to appear. These are both illustrations from New Orleans, um, about 1820. You can see the uh, lady at the upper right. She's wearing the fuller skirt. She's wearing more of a jacket than would have been worn earlier on. The, the uh, slim-cut shift was definitely out of fashion. And you can see that hats were also becoming very popular at this time. Hats were, of course, were an obsession for most of the 19th century. They just varied in size and style from uh, decade to decade. Uh, and then the illustration below, you can see the lady in the carriage. Uh, you can see she's very much the same as the other lady. She's wearing a, a bonnet, which had come into fashion at that time, and a jacket uh, with a, uh, what appears to be a fairly full skirt. Skirts were getting shorter at the time. They were reaching calf length. Puff sleeves began to appear. And by the 1830s, skirts had ballooned out of proportion again. The leg of mutton sleeves with great puffs were um, all the rage. And those big puffs were held up by cushions. Uh, I don't think they could have been very uh, comfortable, but it was the only way to keep them from going flat. Um, corsets cinched in the waist. Waists were encircled by wide belts. And boat necklines bared the shoulders. Uh, by this time, the courts were no longer dictating taste. Uh, you know, the French had a, a bourgeois king in Louis-Philippe. Uh, the British monarchs were certainly not terribly fashionable. It was the bourgeoisie that was beginning to really determine what was being worn, and what they liked was what ended up being manufactured and sold. And this was, of course, all either homemade, made by dressmakers. There was no ready-made clothing at that particular a time, certainly not of the, uh, the high fashion quality. Women's fashion was becoming more and more French at this time. What little influence the British had had earlier on uh, had pretty much disappeared. Uh, and uh, whichever is the most powerful country in the world has tended in the past to influence fashion. In the 16th century, it was uh, influenced greatly by Spain. In the 17th century, by the Dutch. In the 18th century, uh, more and more by, uh, by Versailles. In the 19th century, you would have thought that the British might have had more influence, but it was really the French. The British seemed to have accepted that for themselves. But there's a 
I heard this many years ago, and someone asked the question, where is the best women's store in London? And the answer was Paris. <laughs> then the next question was, where was the best men's store in Paris? London. Uh, through the 19th century, women's clothes tended to be more and more stylishly French, and men's clothes tended to be more and more, I hate to say it, for, forgive me, Savile Row, but more and more boringly English. Uh, but that was typical throughout the 19th century and very much a part of the bourgeois attitude towards things. Women were very elegantly dressed and they were very showy. Hairstyles uh, really became very much a part of fashions of the uh, 1830s, the period of Louis Philippe. Uh, the short cuts of the, uh, the classical look of the earlier years had given way to longer hair, parted in the center with side curls. And by the 1830s, they were arranged in all sorts of absurd top knots. It was referred to as a la giraffe, like a giraffe. <laughs> the lady on the left, and th these are both painted by Vaudechamp. And um, there was a hairdresser in New Orleans. Her name was Henriette Blondeau who was very popular in the 1830s and 1840s. And she made home calls, too. I mean, she would take all of, her, uh, all of her scissors and combs and whatever else with her in an apron and go to your home. But she also had a shop. Uh, hair was done up with bandoline, which I understand is a stiff pomade. And this pomade was made of beef marrow, castor oil, and it was scented with patchouli, heavily scented with patchouli. It would have to be, because I don't know how the beef marrow would hold up. But it was kneaded and kneaded and kneaded and kneaded until it was a thick paste. And then it was put in the hair, and from what I've read, it would hold up for a long time. So, and at this time, hats became very popular, but they were very big. They're sort of bonnet hats, and they would come up to these big... Well, that's where they put their hair. So, but I don't know what the, this beef marrow would have smelled like. <laughs> it's definitely not grill cream. Uh, here are two Orleanians, uh, Madame Auguste Degas, uh, Degas excuse me, and the Duchesse de Rochefort. Uh, this was drawn in Paris. I would suspect they're wearing the height of the fashion at the time. It's 1835. They were related to Degas, the artist in the Musson family, because she was from New Orleans. But you can see it was a period of very low-cut dresses around the shoulder, uh, very full sleeves and skirts which didn't quite reach the ground. This was also the age of Vaudechamp in New Orleans, probably the best portrait painter in New Orleans at that time. And he certainly painted, I'm sure, most of the best families. You can see the style, uh, the lady styles in both of uh, these gowns. The big full sleeves. The girl at the right who is, let's see, um, Desiree Forstall. Uh, you can almost see the pillows holding her sleeve up. But again, low-cut dress, and uh, the other lady as well. And she's even an older lady. Uh, and very, very fine fabrics, I'm sure. Their, hair, their hairdos are not nearly as insane as, uh, as others. I suspect the lady on the left it might be a, uh, a funeral painting because it looks like she's holding a, uh, a small miniature, perhaps, of the deceased uh, husband. But it's definitely the look of New Orleans in the 1830s for those who had the money to do so, and it was the look of uh, Paris as well. This is Marie Fortier. And um, Eliza Ripley is a great source of information of life in New Orleans in the 1830s and 40s. She was, um, 
Stroder Memoirs in 1912. They originally appeared in, uh, in the Times Democrat, and then they were published in book form in New York. And she describes what life was like when she was a, a young girl, which would have been in the 1830s and 1840s. And in her memoirs, she says, in the 30s and 40s, every woman, when she had arrived at middle age, and some even at an earlier age, wore caps. This was the popular look in other American cities and Europe as well. Uh, Mechelin lace, a fine Flemish lace, was the fashionable cap material. And Eliza Ripley said, this was not the modern machine-made lace such as comes from Nottingham, which she called an awful product of today, 1912, which sounds like someone talking about today's products compared to 1912. Everything in 1912 is so much better today, and everything in 1830-something was much better than 1912. These caps were handmade with a net foundation, with lace attached in folds and frills, and on some of them, little pink silk rosebuds were added and other flowers were scattered about them. And you frequently see portrait, portraits of older ladies wearing this sort of uh, headdress, not only here, but in, in Europe as, uh, as well. Uh, they were handmade. You could certainly hire individuals to make them for you, but in many cases, uh, ladies made them themselves. Speaking of headdresses, I want to mention this one. This is uh, Betsy. And uh, she was actually, I believe, a free woman of color. And she's wearing a tignon. And this is something that's very typically New Orleans. Uh, it was, became popular uh, during the period uh, prior to 1785 of, uh, of free women of color to dress to excess, to try to emulate what uh, white women were wearing. Well, Governor Esteban Miro didn't care for that, neither did some of the other white people. So a law was passed requiring that, uh, that uh, women of color wear these tignons to cover their heads. And... Uh, they were reinterpreted with some very masterful tying as well as the additional of ornaments, even jewels. But this even fits into the styles of the late 19th century. One of the popular styles in Europe was turbans. And this was because of the interest in the, uh, in the Middle East and the Romantic Age. And although this is nothing at all like a turban, it is part of the, um, the, uh, the head covering uh, uh, fashion of that period. Lord Byron, yes, I just... <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, returning again to the growth of the uh, textile industry, uh, the period of the 1830s and 40s was one of great industrial expansion and expanding wealth, and this was especially true in the fast-growing American South and New Orleans in particular. This was probably our richest phase in our history. Uh, then the fashion industry depended on King Cotton. There was a vast increase in the production of American cotton. Between 1815 and 1830, it went up by 1,000%. And much of that was being sent to, uh, to England, where it was being made into uh, fabric. Uh, there were more sophisticated textile machines available at that time. Early industrial sewing and stitching machines were coming into to use, which by the 1850s would evolve into the sewing machine. Uh, there was a greater abundance of fabrics and manufacturers. And world textile trade expanded through arrays of specialized importers, exporters, wholesalers, and retailers. In just 50 years, we went from having very general exporters and importers, such as the American companies who were operating in New Orleans, 50, 40 to 50 years later, they were very specialized uh, in what they were, were sending around the world. Also, there was a major change was in the advance of dry goods stores. These weren't department stores. Uh, they were glorified fabrics and notion stores. They replaced the small, highly specialized shops that were typical of an earlier day. And here in the, the new dry goods stores, you could find wide selections of fabric and accessories. Uh, even a few ready-made items were beginning to appear, uh, but really not for women. The ready-made clothing was, was more for men. 
and it had no sizes. If you watch a movie about an old, uh, uh, a movie, if it's properly costumed, many of the men, if they're wearing store-bought clothes, are going to have them very baggy and, and ill-fitting. A good example is the first Levi's. They were one size, one size fits all, but they do have a French connection. Denim is from Nimes, Denim. It's a blue twill. So, but this was all a start in the movement uh, towards the... Um, towards the development of later 19th century um, textile manufacturing and retailing of clothing. Um, advertising was also growing in its way. In New, Orleans, in New Orleans, France was definitely a byword. This is a bill from a shop in Charter Street, Cordevilla, and uh, I can't see the rest of it over there. But the reason I, this is, was actually a men's store. But the reason I show it is the bill head was printed in Paris by a French company. Uh, it gave it gave the store that panache that it should have. And it looks much nicer than those things we get out of cash registers today. <laughs> dry goods stores were opening in the city. We had D.H. Holmes in the 1840s. Uh, uh, Gafers opened in Mobile in the late 1870s. Uh, if you look at their ad over at the right, which is from 1873, you see they have two buying offices, one in New York, one in Paris. And if you look at the one at the left, which dates from the 1840s, importers of French and English fancy dry goods. Mrs. Bannister is advertising Parisian silk and velvet bonnets. Mrs. Bannister on her other column, the one on the left is from 1846, the one on the right is 1849. She advertises French bonnets in that as well. In these uh, Maison Vouchet, the entire bill is written in French. That's the one on the right. The one on the left uh, may include English writing, but it was also printed in Paris. Madame Olympe was probably the best-known dressmaker in New Orleans at the time. Madame Olympe was famous. She was fabled. Her name was Olympe Boisse, and she was born in France. Very popular, sold the most fashionable items in the city. It was very expensive. The men of town called her Madame Olympe, that old imp, because her bills were so high. Uh, you can see her... You can see her letterheads are very elegant, very French, and you can see her ad says she bought articles expressly in Paris for Christmas. She began business in 1853 as a, hat, as a, as a modiste, making hats. By 1858, she expanded to dresses and very pricey accessories. I'll talk a little bit more about her uh, later on. By the 1840s, uh, the unwieldy leg of mutton sleeves were beginning to slim down. After 1835, hats were becoming smaller. While about 1840, Pope bonnets came into fashion. As you can see on these, left is 1846. The one on the right is probably about 1849. These are children of the day. And the reason I show them, uh, they date from about 1845. And they did wear clothing very similar to their parents. But I just want to uh, quote a few things from Eliza Ripley, re reminiscing this particular decade. She says that Woodleafs was the leading store on Charter Street, and Charter Street was the leading fashion street in New Orleans. Barrier's was on Royal Street, uh, where, you could, where could be found all the French nouveautés of the day, beautiful barrage, uh, mercelines and chine silks, organdy stamped in gorgeous designs to be made up with wreathed and bouquet flounces, but above all and beyond for utility and beauty were the imported French calicos, fine texture, fast, fast colors. Madame Ploche had a shop on Royal at Conte. She was all French and dealt only in French importations. 
She mentions, uh, Eliza mentions that the fashionable milliner was Olint with a specialty in imported chapeau. She did not, did not make or trim hats, but imported them from Paris. Eliza Ripley had a friend, Miss Mathilde Eustace, who had relatives in France who kept her en rapport with the latest Parisian styles. There was plenty of information by this time available to women to beyond the Pandora dolls of a century earlier, beyond the uh, infrequent 18th century journals. Things were beginning, magazines were beginning, beginning to come out on a regular basis. Ripley reminisced about Monature des Dames from the late 1840s with pictures and patterns for bonnets. By the 1830s, American fashion books were beginning to appear, and they were available across America. The most popular was, of course, Godey's Ladies' Book, which existed between 1830 and 1898 and cost $2 an issue. That was pretty expensive then. Uh, it had lavish hand-tinted dress illustrations, several of which I've included in this, and instructions on sewing the latest modes at home. By the 1850s, skirts were becoming even wider. Uh, in fact, they were becoming quite voluminous as crinoline came into fashion. Crinoline originally meant just a stiff fabric uh, that just developed along a logical line from narrow skirts getting wider and wider. It soon came to mean just very wide skirts. And it wasn't the first time that women wore wide skirts in the 16th and 17th century. They did. The style came out of uh, Spain, and the English had their farthingales of the 1500s. But uh, this was another time when skirts were just beginning to get progressively wider and more and more, <laughs> more and more out of hand, one would say. These are both ladies of, the, uh, of about 1850. The one at the left is Jenny Lind, uh, one of the great beauties of the day. And you can see she's wearing an evening dress with a very wide band of lace around the neck. This was extremely popular at that time. The lady at the left is uh, Mrs. Delphine Villery from New Orleans. She's wearing a similar cut dress. This is a page of 1858 fashions. You can see the skirts are reaching a point of about six feet in width. And there were uh, bonnets were all the craze at the time, many with chin, bone, uh, chin bows. Orleanians, these are the Olivier sisters, Emma, Olivia, and Zulme, painted in Paris, again wearing low-cut uh, low dresses over the shoulders and wide bands of lace. These are both uh, ladies from New Orleans, uh, John McDonald, Mrs. John McDonald Taylor and Mrs. Mary Campbell Moore, both relatively conservative, uh, as you can see, but there were any number of collar lines at that time. But the basic thing of the dresses at that time were the very, very wide waists. These are both Madeline Folger, mother and daughter, 1858, a wealthy trading family. And you can see fairly wide skirts, uh, not quite the six-foot width, but these dresses are very similar to those you would see in the 1858 drawings uh, that I showed earlier. This is Lafayette Square in New Orleans in 1858. You can see uh, ladies in their full skirts. But what's interesting here is at the lower right, you can see a, uh, a black nursemaid. And although she's certainly not wearing crinoline, she is wearing a wide skirt. Uh, I'm not sure if she would be a slave or a free woman of color, but no matter what, she might be in a uniform from her family. But those wide skirts were all the rage. Every woman wanted to wear a wide skirt. And there are horror stories of women cooking and their skirts getting caught up in the cooking fires and they're being badly burnt or, uh, or killed. A few more newspaper ads from that time. 1855, McEnery and Peck, all of the latest Parisian styles. Uh, Mrs. Turner... I advertise as Paris winter bonnets from the port of Havre 
and she also advertises dressmaking in accordance with Parisian modes. That was the important thing. It had to be the Parisian modes. B. Piffitt's, which was a big dry goods store on Canal Street, advertised Paris ribbons, ribbons, ribbons. Industrial development was continuing at that time. They were cranking out those ribbons and, and brocades and, uh, and uh, other ornamentation that would be worn on dresses. And fabrics were being produced in tremendous quantities in England, but by this time they were being uh, produced in France in great quantities. Louis Napoleon, who was emperor from about 1850 to 1870, uh, was attempting to expand the textile industry in France, and he was encouraging uh, industries to, uh, to uh, manufacture more and more uh, fabric. And at that time, great banks and economic growth were making money available as loans to expand the industry. And this was all transforming the... Uh, the industrial uh, fabric industry. Also, dry goods stores were expanding into department stores, especially in France. Stores like Aubamarché, Galerie Lafayette, uh, Magasin de Louvre uh, were all opening by that time. Women's ready-to-wear was beginning to uh, appear and beginning to improve uh, as sizes were beginning to become part of, uh, of manufacturing. Big stores were learning how to keep uh, people up to style, up to fashion. And that was happening in the United States, too. That's why D.H. Holmes maintained a Paris office, not just a New York office, but a Paris office. So he could, his store would know what to provide the ladies of, this, of New Orleans. In 1853, a critic wrote, the housemaid now dresses better, finer at all events, than her mistress did 20 years ago. And it is almost impossible to recognize working people when they are in their Sunday dresses. Yes, more and more people were beginning to be able to afford uh, high quality or high fashion. Also at this time, couturiers were beginning to appear. The first was Charles Frederick Worth, who was an Englishman. Uh, Empress Eugenie, who was Louis Napoleon's wife, loved his styles, and he quickly became very, very popular. Every wealthy American lady wanted a Worth gown and bought trunk loads of them uh, when they visited uh, Paris. By this time, despite national differences and even wars, French influence had won out in predominating women's fashion in the Western world. The history of costume had become the history of French costume. Style was set by society in general, or at least well-to-do society in general. No longer were monarchs beginning to set the fashion. Probably the strongest monarch in the world was Queen Victoria, and she was not particularly fashionable. She followed Empress Eugenie and Worth. In the period from, the, from about the 1850s to the start of the 20th century, except for variations in silhouette, overblown elegance remained in vogue. It was a big, glorious show, and the prevailing styles were more and more available to the, for the general public to admire. Uh, photography began to show uh, Sarah Bernhardt and Lily Langtree in photo. People could see what they were wearing. Local newspapers like the Daily Picayune in New Orleans began to carry at least weekly ladies' columns, which included not only recipes but the latest Paris fashions. In 1867, Harper's Bazaar, the magazine, came out. And then in 1860, the first of the Butterick's uh, patterns began to appear as ladies be could begin making their own clothing at home. Paris was the arbiter, though, for virtually all of this fashion, at least as far as the silhouettes were concerned. And whatever ornamentation the lady added to the dress was based upon what she could afford. By 1860, crinoline had reached enormous proportions, and if anything, it is um, probably 
synonymous for many people with Empress Eugenie, but for Americans, it tends to be synonymous with Civil War era South. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor in Raintree County, uh, Vivian Lee in Gone with the Wind, and although she and Rhett didn't marry until the early 1870s and she would have been wearing a bustle, where did they go on their honeymoon? New Orleans. She came to New Orleans and scarfed down lots of food so she would never be hungry again and somehow or other didn't manage to gain weight because she went shopping and it was probably at Madame Olympe's. <laughs> and then, of course, there is Jezebel uh, with uh, Betty Davis in that famous scene where she is at a French dressmaker's. She's sitting on a stool with a cage hoop ordering that infamous red dress because it is 1852 and she wants to be very modern and scandalize everybody in New Orleans. But that is probably one of the most famous crinoline scenes in movies. But it's a little inaccurate. The cage hoop didn't come out until about 1854, 1855. It had to be invented. Prior to that, women wore probably dozens, but certainly many, many petticoats underneath, which must have been pretty uncomfortable. When the hoop came out, it must have been a lot more comfortable because she had about three feet on all sides <laughs> around her. And uh, it was certainly must have, it must have been comfortable enough for her to get around it. But it was uncomfortable for everybody else around her. It was uncomfortable for men to get around her, certainly. And there were plenty of jokes in the press about that. The local newspapers in New Orleans... Uh, uh, wondered what would happen if two women met each other walking down the street in opposite directions and who would step out into the gutter because their skirts were wider than the sidewalks and things like that. But in 1860, New Orleans was hit by three hurricanes. Uh, two sort of sideswiped us, one on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, another one near to Mobile. Then the third one came pretty much right over the city. But the first one... Um, caused some interesting comments in the newspapers, and this was on August the 11th, 1860, and the New Orleans Daily Crescent wrote, the stiff gusts sent many a hat and umbrella kiting. Sheds and fences got the rickets and some flopped over, and this important fact was shown in numerous instances that ladies who will wear hoops and will expose themselves to the vagaries of a high wind should be prepared for disaster. And where... <laughs> and wear some part of their raiment or more thereof than usual inside their hoops rather than outside. We heard of several pitiable spectacles of ladies outraged by the wind on public streets. Uh, this is a view of the uh, unveiling day of the Henry Clay Monument, which is on Canal Street, and that's St. Charles in the background. You can see the ladies are wearing their full skirts. And you can also see that they're wearing shawls. Shawls were an extremely popular fashion accessory at the time, and so the two went very much uh, together. As the 1860s wore on, skirts got narrower. Uh, as early as the late 1850s, some fashionable ladies in Paris and Europe were beginning to uh, put their hoops away, but it still stayed on uh, with popularity for a while, but they tended to get smaller, and then by the late 1860s, the dresses tended to get flat in the front and then would, would billow out in the back. These are three uh, ladies in New Orleans. I think the lady in the middle is probably in mourning. The lady at the right is probably in late mourning. These are all from the later 1860s, and you can see the skirts are quite a bit narrower and not nearly as, uh, as flamboyant as they were earlier on. Certainly the lady in mourning would not wear that. And most, most people at home, most ladies at home, would not have worn you know, all of the ornamentation that, that could be included on the dresses. The lady at the right, who's, her name is Mary Stamp. She was a leading educator in New Orleans in the late 19th century. She has a train on that dress. 
I guess she must have just worn it around the house. It would have been a pretty dreadful state of affairs if you wearing that out in the, uh, the streets, although certainly uh, they did. And some dresses at that time, while well, they, they have all these flounces coming down, you could unhook the lower part of the dress and either wash it or replace it. And it was perfectly all right to use a, a different type of fabric or a different color fabric along the bottom. But in New Orleans, with its unpaved streets and really most cities at the time, it would have been a pretty messy situation uh, getting around the streets. The next step was, well, what happened with the, with the hoop skirts? As the hoops went away, the skirts began to fall down and look very limp, and they weren't very uh, attractive. So a new type of cage was invented. And this was just this little pillow affair that was strapped onto the back of the hips. And uh, the French called it the steel tapissier, upholstery style, or the, the bustle. And it became overloaded with heaps and heaps of draperies. I don't know how people lived a, a normal life wearing these sorts of uh, dresses. They could be made up of numerous different types of fabrics, complex array of trimmings and braids. And what some women would do, probably many women, is the, the dresses which were full in the back, as the bustle came in, they just took this whole dress and just pulled it in the back and had it sewn up onto the top of the bustle, and then they would add all sorts of braid and fringe and lace and whatever else to just fill it up with more and more decoration. It was really decorative, and I'm, I'm sure you know, these ladies thoroughly enjoyed wearing this because it showed that they were from fairly wealthy families, but also the fabrics were readily available, the, the braids and the, the laces and that. There were even uh, street vendors who would sell these sorts of materials. And of course, you had more and more bigger stores that were bringing in more and more of this type of merchandise. It was there, it could be purchased, and, and people certainly did. These are two New Orleans scenes. They're ads from uh, Jules Crescent City Illustrated. You can see the ladies at the left at uh, Griswold and Company, which I think was originally Hyde and Goodrich, um, on, uh, on Canal Street. Obviously, this is an advertising tool. The, the, the artist wants the ladies in New Orleans to look very fashionable, but definitely you can see the bustled ladies at the left, and then at the right, at the right which uh, Walsh's was actually a men's store, you can see the lady wearing her bustle as well, and you can see her dress has several different types of fabrics tied up in it. Uh, there's a very good chance the dressmaker made it, there's a very good chance she made it at home, but by the time you get to 1873, women who could afford it owned a sewing machine. Uh, there were 10 sewing machine dealers in New Orleans and nine of them were on Canal Street. So you could go to a store like Holmes and buy your fabrics and you could go to next door and buy your sewing machine. And since this is about the Gulf Coast, New Orleans was the dominant city at the time. New Orleans was by far the biggest city in the South. And by the 1820s, you could go to uh, Mobile or the Mississippi Gulf Coast via a steamboat, and you didn't use the Mississippi River. You went through Lake Pontchartrain, Lake Bourne, through the Mississippi Sound to Mobile. So people in New Orleans on the weekends would go party on the Gulf Coast, whereas people from Mobile and Gulf Coast would come into New Orleans to do their shopping. And it was a very, very common thing for people to come to New Orleans to do shopping. And it wasn't that difficult to get, a, to get around. These are just some other... Uh, Ladies from New Orleans in the 1870s, you can see the use of lace. You can see the lady on the left has a uh, bustle. You can see how complicated the hairstyles had become at that time, the lady on the right. They were pretty complicated through most of the whole period. Uh, I'm not sure if they still use beef marrow in their hair. I think there were more uh, uh, better quality pomades and, and oils and greases that were available by that time. But I think it must have been pretty stiff no matter what it was. I also wanted to show this. This is an African-American lady, probably uh, middle class. 
And by this time, you were definitely seeing the French fashion being worn not just by Anglo-Saxon or uh, white ladies in New Orleans. You were also seeing the, uh, the black population wearing similar uh, fashions as well. She must have been well to do. She went to a very good photographer, Leo, uh, Theodore Lilienthal. A few more ads from the period. Rosa Renoir was, um, was another hat maker and dressmaker in New Orleans. But I want you to notice at the bottom of the ad on the right, Mademoiselle E. Hero, uh, renowned Parisian modiste and late from Paris. Uh, that was a selling point here at that time, and really in the United States. But there were many, many French dressmakers who were coming to the United States then because many of them were being pushed out of business in Paris. First, you had the, uh, the department stores, which were taking much of their business away. Then in 1870, you had the Franco-Prussian War, the bombardment of Paris, the Commune, which essentially closed the city down and, and devastated much of the business. When business came back, the bigger stores, like the department stores, just grew dramatically. The dressmakers uh, really had no place else to go unless they wanted to work for the department stores. So they ended up doing the next best thing, moving to another country, off in the United States. Whereas in France, they were just another unemployed dressmaker. In New Orleans, she would be a very exotic French dressmaker, obviously knowing the latest fashion. So that was definitely an advertising draw in that particular case. Madame Olympe was still in operation, advertising her French <coughs> novelties. And um, Lieberman's advertising the latest uh, Paris styles. By 1883, when this came out, there's something slightly different on Madame Olympe's billhead. If you look at the upper right, it's still printed in Paris, but you can see the two cities, Paris and New York. New York was beginning to uh, not so much catch up with the French, but was definitely an area where you could, uh, say, trust their fashion design. Madame Olympe made it into um, the memoirs of Elizabeth Custer. Elizabeth Custer was George Armstrong Custer's widow. In 1880, she wrote a number of memoirs, but in 1887 she wrote, and this would have been before he was killed in 1876, but this is uh, from her memoir. Uh, she had, we had come on board almost wrecked in our finances by the theater, the tempting flowers, the fascinating restaurants, and finally a disastrous lingering one day in the beguiling shop of Madame Olympe, the reigning milliner, the general had bought some folly for me, a folly being a hat. Uh, Follies then, fascinators today, I suppose. Uh, but if she spent the whole day there, she must have bought more, uh, more things than just a, uh, just a hat. But Madame Olympe was in operation from the early 1850s into the mid-1880s, and she was certainly one of the, uh, one of the leading dressmakers. And unfortunately, I don't have these. I just discovered them on the Internet recently. There are two of the gowns on display at a, at a fashion museum up north, and one is a ball gown. It's a black silk with lots of embroidered flowers on it and lots of fringe. And another one is so heavily hooped that it would be perfect in any 1930s movie set in New Orleans. Betty Davis would have loved it. <laughs> By the late 1870s, the bustle was disappearing. The early 1880s, uh, the bustle was gone. Uh, it still continued to evolve in its progression. Uh, the cage had disappeared, so had the, um, the bustle, and it was a much narrower silhouette. Uh, the bustle actually dropped down to behind the knees, as you can see. This is from Godey's Ladies' Book. I don't know how anybody functioned in these. I have absolutely no notion. I don't see how a woman could sit down in them. They're really quite lovely, but uh, I don't see how one could sit down in them or uh, toddle along the street. They're almost like uh, 
hobble skirts from 1911 or so. But again, you still had masses and masses of fabric. Uh, uh, it just sort of wrapped itself around women's legs with masses of draperies and frills, and it all stretched back into a train. By this time, bonnets had gone completely out of fashion, and it was only hats. Bonnets went out of fashion about as quickly as women's hats went out of fashion in the 1960 or 61, and never quite came back. This is uh, Fanny Hunt from New Orleans. This dates from about 18. 80 or so. It's a rather low-cut dress, but you can see it's part of that very, very tight style of the late 70s and early 80s. And you can see what the hair had turned into, cut fairly short on the sides and then piled up on the top in so many, uh, and lots of uh, curls and, and such. And, you know, much of that was uh, false hair as, as well as, as their own. Uh, here are several other uh, African-American ladies in the style of about 1880. You can see no bustles, uh, dresses are fairly narrow, uh, rather conservative cut, but still it's, it's that style. And again, reiterating the silhouette, the French the 1880s, the bustle came back, and it was bigger and more upholstered than ever. Uh, you know, prior to this, with the, the dress sort of hanging around the back of the knees, it was just an unsupported massive fabric, and the weight must have been, you know, pretty incredible. Uh, but it came back again in vengeance. But this was a more tailored bustle. And this was the one I say you could probably carry a tea tray on it uh, without any difficulty. But you can see other, some of the other fashion styles. There's a lot of experimentation with, uh, with fashion at that time. Again, more bustles of the late 1880s. And this is uh, another New Orleans resident wearing a bustle as well, typical of the late 1880s. And what's interesting here is this is a black lady. You can tell that the French Vogue was very much in fashion with both, with both members of the middle classes in New Orleans. And here's the final picture. She might as well be wearing what the other lady was wearing. It was very much a style of about 1886 to 1887. But uh, New Orleans was really, in conclusion, New Orleans was really a very fashionable city in the 19th century. And, you know, don't love don't take what the modern media would like to say. New Orleans was a very fashionable town. And one of my favorite individuals is from New Orleans, but although she didn't live here very long, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her last name. So if anyone knows how to pronounce it, I will not mind being corrected. It's Alice Payne or Alice Pine. Uh, she was from a very wealthy banking family in New Orleans. She lived on Royal Street at the corner of Domaine. And when she was three years old, her family moved to Paris, which, of course, many did. You know, Baroness Pontalban, you know, any number of people who would have moved to Paris is the place to go. And uh, when she was a young woman, she married the, uh, the Duc de Richelieu. She was very wealthy. He was even wealthier. He died young, and she inherited everything he owned. So, of course, she was up in those, you know, maybe almost as rich as God uh, lifestyles. She met the prince, uh, well, she maintained one of the finest salons in Paris, and she met the uh, Prince of Monaco. She married him. She was the first American princess of Monaco. They married in Paris, had a round of parties, and then went by train to Monaco for another round of parties. Well, where I'm ending this with is that when she went to Paris, she had 22 trunk loads of worth gowns, as well as some other designers as well, on that train. She loved her clothing. And this is sort of a way of saying you might be able to take the lady out of New Orleans, but you can't take the love of fashion and costume out of anyone in New Orleans. Thank you.
anyone has questions. Yeah. A Berlin. Oh, I think it was. Oh, excuse me. The lights right in my face. I think it's a kind of a shawl that was worn, and it was like a needle. I believe it was needlepoint. I may be wrong in that, but a lot of needlepoint was being done in Berlin, and zephyrs were very, very popular. Is that same question? Same question? Yeah. Other questions for John? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You had di- you had different color fashions at different times. In the 18th, early 1870s, for instance, dresses were very very colorful, masses of fabric. By the time you get to the late 1870s and the early 1880s, the popular colors are uh, burgundy and uh, dark greens and browns. And that lasted really through the, the 80s, for the most part. But in the 1830s, dark colors were very popular. So whatever was a popular color at a, at a particular time, or whatever shades were popular. Uh, in the 1830s, you would find, especially for day wear, you'd find dark reds, blacks, dark blues. But certainly for evening wear, you'd see lots of uh, heavy embroidery and lots of, lots of color. So it was, and also I think, this is just kind of a guess, but I think many people, when they were sitting for their portraits, they wanted to look as dignified as they possibly could. So sometimes that would mean a slightly darker color. Yeah. Uh, two questions. Did Victoria have any influence at all on contemporary fashion during her long reign? And secondly, did women's jewelry pretty much track the uh, clothing? Jewelry generally tended to follow the same styles as the clothing. Actually, I think a lot of the jewelry followed much the same styles you would have seen in the silver this morning. And in the china, you went through a period where you would have classical style jewelry, which went along, you know, you would have a much slimmer dress, and then you would have much more classical, lighter jewelry. Then as you began to get more into the 1850s, and you had a voluminous six-foot-wide skirt, you would have much more... uh, ornate and heavier jewelry as well. Queen Victoria really didn't have much say so because she actually followed Worth and Eugenie uh, in her styles. And then by 1862, I think uh, uh, Albert died in 1862, and what she made especially popular, which is kind of bizarre, was mourning. She went into mourning and never quite came out of it. That was an age when you, know, you had different levels of mourning. You would start in full black, and then you might put some lace on, and then you might go to a slightly less dark drab color, but there were entire stores, entire dry goods stores devoted to nothing but mourning. D.H. Holmes had a mourning department. So that was really what she, uh, she popularized at that time, which is, which is rather sad, but she also may have popularized darker colors as well, but really she was not, uh, not particularly fashion-oriented. She tended to follow rather than the other way around. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. German. It's a German name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was very fascinating to read about her uh, 22 trunk loads of... And this was not unusual because uh, wealthy women would go to Paris and the first thing they would do is go to the House of Worth and buy whatever they could buy and bring it back. And of course, everyone back in town... I think even... um, Oh, what's her name? Who wrote uh, The Age of Innocence? Uh, 
Wharton. Edith Wharton mentioned going to Paris and buying Worth gowns, and whoever did not go to Paris would want to see what these gowns looked like. Right. Okay, thank you.